Good morning, Be Free. Welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here. We are a Christ-centered family. Glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it as a church. Um, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to be a part of an organization called Small Town Summits. And what Small Town Summits does is it puts on events for pastors, uh, people in Christian ministry, and for those serving in churches, in church ministry. Uh, people like you and, you and I who are just faithful week in, week out uh, to serve in the church all around New England. Um, and the, the, the heart of Small Town Summits uh, is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover New England as the waters cover the sea. And so sometimes, from time to time, once or twice a year, I get to get together with pastors from all over a region uh, for a time of encouragement and a time of equipping. And just last night, or yesterday morning and afternoon, uh, I was with a group of pastors from the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, uh, 30 faithful pastors who were faithfully serving their churches and, and other leaders in their churches um, and I wanted to share this with you so you can be praying for them, uh, but also to remind you of this. What's happening here is happening other places as well. Uh, we are worshiping the one true God here, but in other churches all across our region, other bodies are gathering to worship the one true God, to seek Him. God is working in these churches in other places as well. And while you and I can't see it on a day-to-day -day basis, what God is doing in all the churches of our region— uh, it was a blessing for me just to get a little glimpse of faithful men all around the region. Uh, and I wanted to share with you, God is working in other places as well. New England is not, uh, is not as dry and dusty as we sometimes think. The Spirit of God is blowing here. And I wanted to, to testify to that to you guys. Acts 14, 8 through 28, that's where we are today. We're continuing on in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And we are coming to the end of the first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit has selected them. He has sent them. And we have seen throughout this entire time that the Holy Spirit has been supplying them as they go from town to town proclaiming the word of the Lord. And if we were to go back and survey everything we've read in this first missionary journey so far, what we would see is actually over and over again, the message that they're proclaiming is described as the word of the Lord over and over again. And over, in that language, the word of the Lord or the word of God, it tells us a couple things. It tells us that the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, is the source of this message. It doesn't come from their heads. It comes from him. It tells us that the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, is the content of that message, not some other subject. They are proclaiming him, who he is. Colossians 1, him we proclaim. <laughs> Jesus is the message of this mission. And today, as we come to the end of this missionary journey, we're going to see that the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one that their entire message and ministry is meant to point towards. What I mean by that is that as they go around from town to town, they're not trying to get people's attention and point to themselves. They're not trying to make themselves look great. They're trying to point to Jesus Christ and trying to make him look great. Paul and Barnabas, this first missionary journey is from Jesus. It's about Jesus and it's for Jesus. <laughs> and as we see Paul and Barnabas plow ahead to the end of this missionary journey today, I want us to take particular notice to the posture of their hearts uh, as, they, as they finish up this, this, this ministry, this mission. <laughs> they are laboring for the Lord. They are working 
hard to make him great in the hearts and the lives of the people that they meet. They are suffering for this mission, continuing faithfully come what may. We also see that they bring about kingdom fruit that's resulting from the effort that they're pouring out to these people. Yet, as I said, at the end of the day, they refuse to take credit for any of it. But they have a posture of humility. If we're going to use more biblical language, actually, we could say that they have a posture of a servant. They're taking the posture of servants to a master. In fact, if we look at a lot of the letters that we find in the New Testament, we find that Paul and James and Peter and Jude, Titus, no, not Titus, that's Peter as well, (laughs) but they describe themselves first and foremost as servants. Let me just read you the first couple lines of a couple books. This is the first couple words of the books of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ. The first words from the book of Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The first words of the book of James, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first words of the book of 2 Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus. The first words of the book of Jude, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. If these guys had one word they wanted to use to describe who they were, it would be servant. Is that the word you'd use first? This posture of humility and servanthood is not unique to Paul and Barnabas and Titus and James and Peter and Jude. This posture of servanthood and humility, in fact, is the posture that we are all called to as we submit to the one who we call Lord, Master, and King, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that today in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 8 through 28. Before we go there, let me pause. Let me pray. Pray with me. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we come today to open your word, to learn what it says so that we can be changed by it. We don't want to leave the same people we were when we came. We want to love you more. We want to obey you more faithfully. We want to be more zealous for other people to come to know, Father, the joy that we have found in you. Father, help us live joy-fueled mission, Lord. Joy-fueled obedience, God. That as we come to love you more deeply, the idea of not offering this joy to the people we love would become more and more unthinkable. And so I pray, Lord, that as we we come to this passage today, as we think about the posture of humility that Paul and Barnabas show in this passage, that it would challenge and convict us as we ask ourselves, with, with what posture are we coming to you? Is it with one of humility or entitlement? Is it with one of servanthood or control. But no matter, Lord, what it is that you have for each of us today, I pray that it would be your word that speaks, not me. And that your, our, all of our hearts, Father, it would be softened to hear your message. So do your work today. We humbly want it. Help us obey it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, over the last two chapters, let me put the map up here on the screen. I'll show you uh, where we've been so far. They left from Antioch. They sailed to the island of Cyprus, from which they sailed north to Perga, traveled north to Antioch. From there, they ran for their lives from Iconium, and that's where we are today, starting in verse 5 of chapter chapter 14. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, there in Iconium, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, 
And there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, so that's the closing verses from last week, and that's the context. That's where we are. Now we're finding ourselves in the next city, the city of Lystra. Let me continue reading in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. All right. The story here doesn't take much explanation. You, you read it, you understand what happens. Uh, it's actually, it's an echo of a miracle that happens in Jesus' ministry. Stand up on your feet, and he obeys. This is a miracle. And a miracle, a miracle, I've been trained on how to say this word over the last couple months. <laughs> the, uh, the, this, this miracle has been, or miracles, I should say, have been accomplished through the ministries of Jesus and the apostles uh, all the way through their ministries. And when we think about miracles, what a miracle is, is an event brought about by God that could never have happened naturally. That's the definition I'm using. Uh, because after all, the sun rose this morning. That is an event brought about by God. But it's something that he baked into the nature of our world. It happens every day. That was something he set a rhythm of in, in our world. A miracle is when God breaks in to make something happen that will not naturally happen in the way that he created the natural order. And that's what's happening here. A man who has never walked before does not all of a sudden, with a snap of his fingers, with a, the suggestion of a man named Peter, decide, yeah, I think I'm going to walk now. This is God doing something miraculous, something that could not have happened without his intervention. And at their core, what miracles do is, what they, is that they offer for us a glimmer of the coming kingdom. Miracles, what they do is they give us a taste of what this kingdom of God is going to be like when it comes in its fullness, when it's completed. In other words, miracles, they pull the curtain back just a little bit. They're a pinprick in the, in, into eternity, a sneak peek of the day when sorrow and pain will all become untrue. It gives us a little glimpse of what we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away that's what miracles do just a glimpse they make us hunger for that kingdom of god this is what pastor and, and uh, author jared wilson says he says miracles demonstrate i like this the at-handness of the kingdom jesus christ came to say the kingdom of god is at hand and the miracles say see and this is a little taste of what it's going to be like he continues he says, the miracles are acts of heavenly normalization, which is to say, they are isolated snapshots of the transformation of the broken world to the way it will someday be. In other words, miracles show us what the world's going to be like when everything is fixed, when everything is put to right again. Heavenly normalization. What will be normal when his work is complete? That makes me long for it all the more, doesn't it? And so when the disciples do miracles in the book of Acts, yes, what it's doing is it's showing the love and the mercy of, of God. Uh, it's giving opportunities uh, for them to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do these miracles, like in Acts chapter 3, people come running. It gives them a chance to proclaim it. Absolutely. Um, it validates the message they're proclaiming. We see also in the, in the gospels that it validates who Jesus says he is. 
but it's also showing this glorious nature of the kingdom, what's coming for us. So let me boil it down like this. Miracles are about Jesus and his kingdom. (laughs) Miracles point to Jesus and his kingdom, to him and what he is doing. And if a miracle ever accomplishes any other goal than that, it is not being put to its proper purpose. (laughs) So that's an issue with what we read next here in the book of Acts. Let me read you what happens next after this miracle in Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 13. This is what we read. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, I think that's how you say it, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Do you see the problem? (laughs) Paul and Barnabas, they come here doing a miracle which is meant to point people's hearts to Christ or to, to the God that they are proclaiming. It's meant to point praise to him, but they come and want to point praise to them. (laughs) The praise of men is alluring. We like to be liked. We like to be admired. And we could understand how it would be possible for somebody to be praised in this way to say, well, stop it. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty great, wasn't it? In fact, back in chapter 12, what we see is the people of Tyre and Sidon do something like that. If you remember this, The people of Tyre and Sidon, Herod comes to them, and he's speaking to them. And the people of Tyre and Sidon shout out to Herod, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what happens to Herod? He receives it, and God strikes him down. When Herod receives the glory and the praise that God alone is due, he is judged for his sin immediately. Herod receives the the praise that only God deserves. And so here, when the crowds say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, how do Paul and Barnabas respond? Because in light of chapter 12, their response might be really important. This is what we read in verses 14 through 17. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul raises a man to his feet. People come out wanting to worship him. What do they do? They do three things. First, they lament. They tear their robes, a way of showing symbolically, no, 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 no. You've got this wrong. Then they take the next step to correct them ardently, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We are not God. We are merely men just like you. They lament, they correct, and finally they redirect. Verse 15, we bring you good news, they say, that, we should, that you should turn from the vain things to the living God, a living God who made the heavens and the earth and sea 
and all that is in them. <laughs> Men of Lycaona, do not point your praise to us. Point your praise to God. Because he's the one who did this. He's the one who deserves the glory. He is the one who's working. We're just the middlemen. That's what he's saying here. And in fact, they explain that the giver of this good gift is actually the giver of all good gifts. We might read this and think to ourselves, why is he talking about rain? Why is he talking about harvest? What's he getting at? What he's saying is that the God to whom you should point your praise is the same God to whom you should be pointing your praise for all the good things in this life. He said that he did good by giving you rains from heaven and, uh, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Don't just praise him for this. <laughs> praise him for everything. Because he's, he's the giver of every good and perfect and beautiful gift. This is a beautiful connection. And it's, it's a, it shows us a little bit about Paul. He is going to take every single opportunity he has to point people to the one true God. For God to receive the glory that he is due for everything that he has ever done for us. So he bore witness, God bore witness, it says, to himself in natural ways, verse 17, and now he's bearing witness to himself in supernatural ways. Don't point your praise to us, point it to the one who deserves it. So Paul and Barnabas succeeded where Herod failed, pointing the glory back to the God of the universe. They're taking the posture of the servant. The servant who serves the will of the master and works for the good and the glory of the master. Um, now I want us to consider this for a minute. How wrong would it have been if they didn't point the praise onto God? <laughs> How backwards and disgusting would it have been if they actually said, yeah, that was pretty great. If they took the praise for what they did rather than pointing it on to the one who deserved it, I think it would be a little bit like if your, your boss gave you your friend's paycheck and said, hey, I forgot to give this to him before he left for the weekend. I'm not going to see him until Monday. Can you bring it to him? And then you stick it in your bank account. I think it'd be a little bit like if somebody knew that somebody else in our church was struggling to make rent, so they went to you and said, hey, I want to give this as an anonymous gift to that person. Will, will you pass it on for me? And you say, sure, and you bring it over to them, and you said, hey, I got this for you. To receive credit for what another has done. It's not just deceptive, it's disgusting, it's grotesque. We, we, those two stories, they, they, they make you justly mad when you, when you think about them. But that's what it would be like if Paul and Barnabas took credit for what God did here. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm, 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 sure, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm sure for, I'm speaking for everyone when, I've said that, when I say this. Uh, nobody's ever spoke, thought I was God before and tried to make sacrifice to me. <laughs> That's not something I've ever had to wrestle with in my life. <laughs> but I think that we all constantly are tempted to take credit for the things God does in different ways. I think that we're all tempted from time to time to take credit for the things that God does. And I think that we do this in two ways. One is obvious, and the second is not so obvious and therefore insidious. <laughs> because it can sneak up on us in ways that we would never expect. But let me share with you the first one first, the one that's maybe a little bit more obvious. 
We take credit for what Jesus does through us. We take credit for what Jesus does when he works through us. And I say that this one's a little bit more obvious because as we know, every believer at the moment of faith is given a unique spiritual gift. And then over the years, we're able to use that gift and the other gifts that God gives us in order to take opportunities to serve him, to do his work in this world. And these God-given abilities, they don't originate from us and they weren't given for us. They came from God and they are for the church. We're just the middlemen. And that's what we read in the First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. This is what it says. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A grace is God's giving us something that we haven't earned, something we don't deserve. So God has given us these gifts without asking or without us earning them, and he wants us to receive them and steward them for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. These gifts, they're not from us, they're not for us. They're from God, they're for the church. And God might use us to lead someone to himself. They might, he might use us to teach. He might use us to serve with our hands, to practice hospitality, to clearly, clearly proclaim the gospel. He might use us to counsel someone through a difficult season of life. God might use us to do all these things or any of these things, and I hope he does, but I hope we never forget that we are merely the middlemen. That the ability to do the good works we do comes from him and it is for them. <laughs> that you are a servant in the service of your master. That any praise that you or I receive for using the gifts that God has given is praise that we direct right back to the one who made it possible. The one whom we are serving. I'm not going to belabor this point because I think it's one that we, that we understand pretty easily. It's our responsibility when we serve the Lord to point praise to the one who really deserves it, who really, whom we are trying to serve in, in the process. And so that's the first way that I think we can take credit for the things that God does. And as I said, that's maybe the one that's more obvious. By taking credit for what Jesus does through us. Now, the second one is, as I said, the one that's a little bit more insidious because it sneaks up on us. We don't see it coming. We take credit for what Jesus does through us, but we also take credit for what Jesus has done and is doing in us. We take credit for what Jesus has done and is doing in us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this is what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. Now here's the thing. We know this. <laughs> if I was to give you a written test today, and on that test it asked the question, who accomplished your salvation? I have very little doubt that the majority of the people in this room would get the right answer. That we know that the answer to that question is that I did nothing, Jesus did everything. That nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. That our lives don't earn salvation. Our works don't, don't, don't earn for us his love like a paycheck. That it's his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection that earned for us our salvation. He did everything. We did nothing. We know that. And we also know that he is the one who's continually working in us. 
That if we want to grow in this life to look more like Jesus Christ, we are dependent on him to do that work in us. We know these things. So why do I say that we constantly forget it? Why do I say that it's insidious for us to forget it? Well, I think we do forget it quite often when we do something that we as Christians are prone to do. We do something as Christians that actually reveals what we actually believe about how we were saved and how we grow. What we do is we cast judgment on the other people. When we cast judgment on other people, Christians and unchristians, what we're doing is we're showing what we really believe in our hearts about where God's favor is received. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. When we look at people who don't know Christ and we say to ourselves, how could they possibly X, Y, or Z? How could they possibly be so blind? How could they possibly be so hard-hearted? My hunch is that in that moment, what we're doing is we're forgetting that we were just as blind before Jesus Christ opened our eyes. We're forgetting that we didn't open them. He opened them for us. We didn't remove the scales. He did that for us. We're forgetting that we had hearts of stone before he came in, removed that heart of stone, and gave us a heart of flesh. We're prone to forget that. Because a Christian who has forgotten who saved them will shake their heads at sin, judge the sinner, and back away. But a Christian who remembers who saved them will still be heartbroken by sin, but will pray for that sinner and push in to share the hope that they have. Do you see the difference? This isn't taking sin lightly. This is taking the gospel seriously. This is correcting and connecting them to the source of life. When we pass judgment on somebody who does not know Christ, we are acting as if we brought about the change that happened in us, in our actions. And I think we do the same thing within the church as well. When we look at other believers within the body of Christ, people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we say to ourselves, how could they possibly X, Y, or Z? How could they possibly be so blind? How could they possibly be so hard-hearted? I think that in that moment, we might just be forgetting that Jesus is the one who is transforming us. We're forgetting the reality of our sanctification, as, as we call it, that Christ solely transforms us more and more into his image. Forgetting that if we are further along in our walk, it's because Jesus helped make that a reality, that we didn't do it. Forgetting on how long this walk is, how long it took for Jesus to remove our blind spots in our lives, how long it took for Jesus to mature us. Forgetting also that the process in us is not yet done. A Christian who has forgotten who is continually sanctifying them, growing them, maturing them, will shake their heads at sin, will judge their brother, and will back away. But a Christian who remembers who is sanctifying them, that it's Jesus working in them, will still be brokenhearted by sin, but will pray for their brother, push in lovingly to correct, to encourage, and to disciple their brother. Do you see the difference? Again, it's not taking sin lightly. It's taking the gospel seriously, connecting our brothers and sisters to the source of life and the source of growth. So Christian, my, my encouragement to you today, if you are 
a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do not take credit for what Jesus Christ has done through you, and do not take credit for what Jesus Christ has done in you. Rather, point all praise back to him. (laughs) He is worth it. He deserves it, because he has done it. Everything is for him. Now let me read on to the end of this passage today. I'm going to read verses 19 through 28. And as I do, we're going to get to see one last picture of Paul and Barnabas humbly taking the posture of a servant one more time. Let me read it. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, sorry, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. That's a long journey. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they, about face, and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Basidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, back home, where they had been commended, commended uh, to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And this is the end of Paul's missionary journeys. I wonder if we could put the map up here on the screen again. We can see they just about face. They go to Derby, they about face, and they do the entire missionary journey again. In reverse, as they go, passing through towns where people were trying to kill them, (laughs) passing back through towns, visiting the churches that they planted on the way out. And by this point, you know, we know that they have traveled so far. They have sacrificed so much. They have suffered so much ridicule, so much persecution, and they have been so incredibly faithful the entire time. These men have done so much good work for the kingdom of God. And we see it attested to us as they journey all the way back through. They preached the gospel. They made many disciples. And then when they about face in Derby, visiting the towns where the people tried to kill them, they go from church to church, strengthening the souls, it says, encouraging them to continue, warning, warning them of the suffering that was going to be theirs, saying that through many tribulations they were going to enter the kingdom of God. Not just that, but they help organize the church, appoint leaders in their churches like, like elders, They even continue speaking the word, such as in Perga, before sailing back home. They did so much faithful good work on this journey back home. But I think the thing that shocks me about reading this last last account and just hearing how much they gave is that it reminds me of something Paul says about himself in a couple of his letters, actually. He says this, I don't have it on the screen, But he says this in the book of 2 Timothy and in Philippians chapter 2. He likens his ministry to a drink offering. In both of those passages, he compares the work that he does to a cup of wine that's being poured out for the Lord. And I hear the account of what he does in this journey. 
And I think, yeah, that sounds like pouring out to me. It sounds like he gave everything for the mission of God. His comfort, his time, his energy, his safety, all for the mission of God. Yet despite all that he's done, all that they've done, all their hard work, all they've sacrificed, all they've given, in light of all of that, I want to listen again to the report that they give to the church back in Antioch when they get back home. This is what they say. 1427. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. If I had done all that work, if I had sacrificed all that time, all that energy, over a year of my life, if I had suffered the persecution and the ridicule that they had suffered, I would want to go back to that church and let them know all the good work I had done. (laughs) But when they get back to the church, they make no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They want the church to know that the one who deserves the glory for all the amazing work that happened on this journey is the one true God. The one that opened the ears of the the Gentiles, the one who, who was over supplying them this entire God, this entire journey is the God of glory. And I think that in this, one more time, here at the end, they model for us what it looks like to have a posture of a servant. I think if the first half of this passage today is a reminder to us not to take credit for what Christ has done, the second half, their journey back, It causes us to ask ourselves this question. Man, as Paul and Barnabas pour themselves out like drink offerings, are we doing the work that God has given us to do? Are we as willing to pour ourselves out as drink offerings for the Lord? We might say, are we as willing to waste ourselves for the kingdom of God as Paul and Barnabas are willing to do? Are we willing to receive no glory, no credit for what God has done in us, but simply to give God and his kingdom the glory that they deserve, that he deserves for the work that he does through us? I think it gives us a chance to be free today to take an honest assessment and ask ourselves, are we pouring ourselves out in the ways and in the places that God is leading us to? Because I think that as we take that personal assessment, we can we might realize that there's a few things that might prevent us from pouring ourselves out like drink offerings. There's three that come to mind. Three that might prevent us from actually taking the step of obedience, to this costly step of obedience, to pour ourselves out for the work of the Lord in the world where he's put us. Those three things are busyness, fear, and uncertainty. Busyness, fear, uncertainty. As you take a look at your calendar, are you too busy to fulfill the work that God has called you to do? Take inventory of your life. Take inventory of your calendar. Ask yourselves that question and ask yourselves, do you, I need to rearrange my priorities? Do I need to rearrange my, my schedule to make it possible for me to do the work that God has called me to do? Because If you do, I encourage you, wrestle. (laughs) Figure out what it looks like for you to pour yourself out for the kingdom of God. Does it mean getting involved in something at church? Does it mean getting a mentor with LifeBridge? What does it look like for you to be faithful to the work that God has called you to do, to pour yourself out, to make space for doing so? 
The second thing that could stop us from pouring ourselves out like a, as a drink offering unto the Lord is, is fear. And when I say that, I mean fear of inadequacy. Feeling as though we don't have what it takes to do the work that God is calling us to do. And if that's true, I want to encourage you to wrestle with a follow-up question. What does he need? Or how, do, how, does he, how is he calling you to perhaps grow and to supplement certain areas of your life so that you can be obedient to what God is calling you to do? I encourage you to wrestle with that. Don't wrestle with it alone. Talk to a friend in the church, somebody else who you trust and who you love and who knows you, knows your giftings, so that you together can wrestle over that question. What does it look like for me to grow so that I can be obedient to what God is calling me to do? And the last one, busyness, fear, finally, uncertainty. Uncertainty. And that one, by that I simply mean, well, I don't know what God is calling me to do. <laughs> Uh, I have no hunches at the moment, and I think we've talked about this a number of times in the book of Acts already, but again, I just want to remind you, if you do not know where the Lord is leading you, if you do not know what He wants you to do with your life, what it looks like for you to pour out for Him and His kingdom, pray, but do not pray alone. <laughs> Bring that question to a brother, a sister who knows you, and who loves you, who will pray together with you. Who will take honest inventory of your gifts with you, your, your, your passions, your experiences, and, and consider with you what does it look like for you to take an amazingly sacrificial step, pouring out your life for the kingdom of God. The God of the universe came as a man, died on a cross redeeming us. And now we, as we live for him in his kingdom, we together as his people, as his church, work by the power of the Holy Spirit to give him the glory he is due, to love him more and to point more people to worship him. Let's join together, together as a church and with the universal church to make that happen. It's what he calls us to, and it is a joy in the process. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the call to come and die uh, is, is what you call all believers to, God. We come and die. Uh, we find ourselves united with you <laughs> and united with you in your resurrection, Lord. By death, we have found life. And Father, in that death, by taking up our cross, Father, we surrender to wherever you lead us. We surrender to the work, to the to the ministries, to the hard situations that you call us to. And so, Father, I pray that we today, as we, as we wrestle over this question, uh, taking inventory of our lives and wondering what it looks like for us to pour ourselves out as a drink offering, God, I pray that you would make it clear to us. Show us what baby steps we need to take. Maybe it's just one little thing. Maybe it means quitting one thing for another. But at the end of the day, Lord, our deepest heart and our desire is that all of us together would live lives that give glory to you. Show us what it looks like to do that. We ask you for that, Lord, and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.